Please join me in today's scripture reading. It comes from Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1, 3, 11 through 12, 16, and 22. How lovely, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasure for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. It is nothing to you, all you who pass by. Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Let all their evil doing come before you, and deal with them as you have dealt with me, because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. This is the word of the Lord. So no one is left wondering or worried. Uh, Sid and his family are doing fine. Uh, They're simply just quarantining at home uh, because of some potential contact exposure. so didn't want y'all to, to worry about them. And I just texted him this morning and everyone's feeling fine. So um, if you do have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to Lamentations chapter one, the passage that Heather just read for us. Um, it's between Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to share something called the sin pie. This is something that uh, a friend of mine shared with me a number of years ago. And what it is, is basically uh, this, this pie chart. So imagine a circle, imagine a pie chart divided into thirds. And the purpose of this pie chart is to help us understand what we as Christians and what the Bible calls us uh, to do with sin. So how do we respond to sin? And so as you imagine this, this pie chart, uh, the first third is, uh, are the sins that we commit. The lies that we tell, the lust that we have, our greed, our self-righteousness. And so, what, what is the biblical response to the sins that we commit? It's repentance, right? Confession, turning from our sin and turning to the Lord. The second third is the sins that others commit against us. So, the, the betrayal, the abuse, the, the idolatry, the sins others commit against us, What's the, what's the Christian or the biblical response to when someone sins against us? Forgiveness, right? We're called to forgive. Well, the third, uh, third of the sin pie is the effects of sin on the world. So think of wars, poverty, natural disasters, this pandemic, cancer, other illnesses, things like that. What is the biblical response to encountering sin in the world? It's not to downplay or ignore the, the effects of the fall or the effects of sin. It's not just to look for the silver lining when it comes to the brokenness of the world, the effects of sin. It's not even primarily to go out and defeat it, to defeat the effects of sin, to eliminate them, to resist them. Our primary response, at least according to the Bible, to the effects of sin on the world is to grieve. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do when we smack up against the brokenness of the world. 
even the brokenness that we feel in our own bodies. So as we come to God's word this morning, let's consider what it might look like for us to grieve things worth grieving, to grieve things like cancer or losing a job or losing a loved one. Let's bring those griefs to the Lord as we consider his word this morning. Uh, And before we dive in, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father of mercies, God of all comfort, we ask that you would speak to us this morning in and through your holy word, for we, your people, are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. What songs do all Americans know? What songs do all Americans know? Think for a second. Try to come up with examples in your, in your own mind. Uh, if you're at home, uh, maybe even feel free to hum or sing uh, the tunes out loud. What songs do all Americans know? How many of you are thinking, Happy birthday to you? Or, Oh, say, can you see? Right, that probably came to everyone's mind. If you're below the age of six and Above the age of 26, you might be thinking, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? And apologies if you have Daniel Tiger or Mr. Rogers stuck in your head for the rest of the afternoon. But of all the songs that you thought of, all the songs that you came up with, how many of those songs help us as Americans to grieve? How many of those songs help us express our deep pain and sadness and grief over the brokenness of of the world? Can you think of any? Several years ago, a friend of mine was teaching a seminary class on Lamentations, and he made this comment. He said to the class, we don't have this genre of lament of grieving the brokenness of the world, of grieving over sin. We don't have this genre in American life. And immediately, a Korean student named Philip raised his hand and shared with the whole class that Koreans actually have songs of lament that every Korean knows and could use, could call upon when the occasion called for it. And these were songs that were not written necessarily out of, a, out of a desire to have these kinds of songs, but out of necessity. Because during the Korean War, which ended in 1953, uh, three million people died, many of whom were civilians. It, it's the deadliest conflict, it was the deadliest conflict in East, East Asia, more deadly than the Vietnam War. The casualties from the Korean War represented 10% of the entire population of the Korean Peninsula. 10%. That would be the equivalent today in our country of 33 million Americans losing their lives. In the winter of 1951 alone, one winter, more than 50,000 South Korean National Defense Corps soldiers starved to death. This was a horrific military conflict the people were just surrounded on all sides by death. 
Now, the question that I want to pose us is, how did this nation, th this people, how did, how did they process their terrible, terrible grief and go on to become one of the largest economies in the world in the span of one lifetime? How did this happen? Could it be that they were able to make it through their grief by composing and singing songs of lament, of actually incorporating the genre of lament into their national psyche. This, this book that we're looking at this morning, the Book of Lamentations, it's been called a, a funeral dirge, a funeral dirge for a city. And we're going to dig into the historical circumstances of this book in just a second, but for now, just consider how foreign a concept this is for us as modern Americans. I mean, funerals make us uncomfortable. So much so that instead of funerals, we have celebration of life services. We don't like to talk about sad or painful things, much less sing about them. And, and just think, I mean, if you're having a really bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad year, and maybe later after the service, you bump into someone and they ask you, hey, how you doing? How's it going? Aren't you tempted to say, uh, I'm okay, I'm fine, and then quickly just pivot, how are you doing? We're uncomfortable with sadness and pain and grief. Our culture tells us that we, we've got to be happy all the time. We essentially worship happiness and we loathe sadness. And yet, over and against our cultural aversion to grief, the book of Lamentations declares to all of us, you are free to grieve. We are free to grieve. You know, it's in the title alone. The original title of this book wasn't Lamentations, but simply the word how. It's the first word of the whole book, how. That's the original title of this book. And if you think about it, isn't that just the language of grief? How could this happen? God, how could you let this happen? And in particular, here in chapter 1, we see that we are free to first acknowledge what has happened, second, bring God and others in, and third, we're free to cry. That's our outline for this morning. We're free to acknowledge what has happened, bring God and others in, and cry. So first, we're free to acknowledge what has happened. You know, this book begins by revisiting the very worst day in Israel's history. And it goes on to record in vivid details the, hor the, the horrors of that day. Look with me at verse 3 that Heather read earlier. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So the historical background here is the destruction of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel in 586 BC, and the subsequent captivity of God's people at the hands of the Babylonian Empire led by King Nebuchadnezzar. 
this really happened. It's, it's recorded here. It's recorded in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, but also in multiple extra-biblical accounts, extra-biblical texts. This is an actual historical occurrence. But not only did this happen, a survivor memorialized the events here in poetry. And these poems... This whole book of Lamentations are a series of poems. These poems have been recited and sung in worship. They've been sung in worship of God for thousands of years. So Jews, the Jewish people, they, they still to this day recite this book on the ninth of Av, which is the saddest day of the Jewish calendar during the summer, usually in July. And it's a day of fasting and mourning, and in, in particular, mourning the destruction of Jerusalem. But also, some Christians read and sing this book during Lent, the season that we're in now, and especially during Holy Week, and especially, especially on Good Friday. Now, why did God include this book in his holy word? And why have his people used it even in worship? It's so that his people from the 6th century B.C., even until today, it's so that we wouldn't just read it once and move on, but that we would internalize it and make it our own. Now, even as I say that, what does that look like? I just want to give one very practical suggestion. We can internalize this message, this book, by taking an inventory of our losses. Take an inventory of your losses. Carve out some time in your schedule. Find a quiet place to go sit. Uh, maybe go on a walk. Maybe just sit in a car in your driveway if that's a quiet place. But starting with the most recent events, work your way back, chronicling the losses that you've experienced over the course of your life, the griefs that you've accumulated over time, the betrayals, the deaths, the injuries, the abuses, the unfulfilled dreams. Record that inventory of losses somewhere, whether that's on a phone or in a notebook. Record not only the event itself, but record how it affected you emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. That practice, in and of itself, can be and is healing. But maybe you're wondering, Andrew, if I do that, what's going to keep me from just spiraling? What's going to keep me from just spinning my wheels in grief? And this brings us to our second point. Bring God and others in. Look at verse 11. In the midst of the suffering brought on by starvation, Jerusalem, who's personified here, personified Jerusalem, cries out to God, Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. I am despised. I looked up this passage in like four or five different English translations, and each one had a different translation for that word despised. Some translated it as worthless, or useless. The idea here is, is you're, you're discarded. You're considered almost untouchable. 
Has your suffering ever made you feel that way? Has your suffering, your grief, ever made you feel useless, despised, untouchable, almost like you're lower than dirt? That's exactly how God's people feel here. And they're calling on God to notice them in the midst of that lowest of low estates. So bring God in. But keep reading. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. So now God's people's attentions turn not just to God, but to their neighbors, who up until this point hadn't really taken any notice of Jerusalem's suffering, but now Jerusalem is making, so, making it so that they can't ignore it. Notice how Jerusalem is, 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 is not only saying, you know, look at how miserable we are. They are challenging these passerbys to, to recall any suffering worse than this. Can you think of any greater suffering than our suffering? Now, just a couple things to think about before we move on. First, as a society, we Americans, we are repulsed by this. We see ourselves as rugged individuals, able to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So anything that, that even remotely smells of self-pity or kind of wallowing in pity, wallowing in sadness, it's inherently un-American. Again, our unalienable rights are not to life, liberty, and a display of sadness. It's to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That makes us Americans. But again, according to the Bible, one of the best things we can do with our grief is to let others see it. So one, one other thing, a second assumption. We think that God is distant from us in our suffering. And this is more or less reinforced uh, by a lot of the songs that we sing, even songs that we sing in worship. The vast majority of them are, are more upbeat, right? More hope-filled. And well, they should be. We're, we're gathered here under the resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ. But if we don't have songs to sing that help us tap into our grief, what does that instill in us? Or consider just the passages that we've heard preached on. How, how many of us have heard sermons out of the book of Lamentations before? Or just consider the, the counsel that we give and we receive others. You know, if you're a Christian, you've probably been told at one point or another in your life, you need to learn to be content in all things, which is biblical. I mean, Paul, Paul says that. But the context that Paul is saying that in is in the midst of his need. <laughs> in the midst of his need, he's, he's learned to be brought high and to be brought low and to be content in all seasons, even in a season of grief. Well, the net result of all this is we believe that we have to be happy to be with God and that on some level, God is repulsed by our grief and our sadness. But Lamentations has a different assumption. It assumes that God is accessible to us 
in our worst grief, that he hears and he sees us when grief makes us feel completely cast aside and untouchable, despised. Lamentation shows us that God is willing and able to enter in. And in the writings of the prophet Isaiah, a prophet that the author of Lamentations would have been familiar with, in Isaiah, God's divine servant, the one who would bring salvation and rescue God's people, he is described as being despised. There's that word again. And rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then, as you read into the Gospels in the New Testament, you meet Jesus who would fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. And and Jesus is portrayed as the God who draws near to people in their grief. The God who sees and listens to a father who's at the end of his rope because his little girl has just died and he's beside himself. Jesus is the God who cries violent, angry sobs outside of the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He's the God who promises blessing not to the joyful, but to those in mourning. A God who said to his closest friends, his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. I just want to pause here and acknowledge something important. Some of you have been carrying a very heavy burden for far too long. The burden to be happy, to be joyful, to be okay, to be put together, to have it all together. And I say this with love, but that is a false gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a gospel of works. The work of being cheerful. The work of putting on a brave face. The work of smiling, smiling through the pain. To all of you who have felt this burden, please let me remind you that you are not saved by your joy in the Lord You are saved by his joy in you. That's the gospel. As the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So the truth is, please please hear me say this, the truth is you don't have to go looking for God in your grief. He is already there. And this brings us to our last point, which will be the shortest one. Not only are we free to acknowledge what's happened and free to bring God and others in, we are also free to cry. Look again at at verse 16 and verse 22. The writer of Lamentations says, For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. And then look at the end of verse 22. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. All the Bible gives us permission to weep. 
and not just one tear that we wipe away and we're done. It gives us permission to weep uncontrollably, to let the tears pour, to stream out. We see this in these two verses, but it's all over the place. If you go and read Lamentations on your own sometime, you'll see it all over the place. In, in, In chapter 1, verse 20, it says, My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me. In other words, let your gut wrench. In, in verse 21, it says, Hear my groaning, yet there's no one to comfort me. And again, the verse 22 that we just read, My groans are many and my heart is faint. In other words, you don't have to be embarrassed to literally groan. This is not just figurative language. You don't have to be embarrassed to literally groan, to let your grief manifest itself in tears, in heartache, and even in audible groans. No matter what anyone else might think, those groans are music to your Savior's ears. He longs to hear your entire heart, the whole you. Maybe you're thinking, gosh, that's a bit much. Um, Fair enough. But even if you can't muster tears or groans, at least let yourself get a lump in your throat as you think about your losses, your griefs. At least give yourself permission to sit in sadness for a while. Shakespeare once wrote, Give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak whispers the overfraught heart break. Give sorrow words. A friend of mine is actually a a colleague who's a campus minister with RUF, Reform University Fellowship, um, over over at Vanderbilt. He, uh, He likes to say that when students come to him and share real tragedies, really sad things, real griefs, and they ask him, Richie, what, what do I do? What should I do here? He likes to look at them and, and tell them two words. Be sad. Be sad. And that is a very biblical response. It's a very Christian response to our pain, our sadness, our suffering, the griefs in the world. Be sad. The book of Lamentations says it is okay to not be okay. You're free to be sad. You're free to cry. You're free to grieve. And so as we close, I want to encourage you to do one thing, very practical thing. Take your, your inventory of losses that we talked about at the beginning and go and find one person, one person you trust who you can share your list with. Maybe it's a close friend, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a pastor, an elder, maybe it's a neighbor or coworker. To the extent that that person is a good listener and is compassionate, she or he can and will represent God to you as you share your griefs with him or her. So share your griefs with God by sharing them with a trusted friend. But here's the real beauty of sharing your griefs with someone. And if you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. When you share your griefs with someone else, you actually represent God to them. Because the God that we worship, the God of the Bible, the true God, 
the God who came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, he didn't just come to save us from our sins. He didn't just come to do that. He came to let us see him in all of his griefs. Jesus was raised from the dead, not just to defeat death, but to let us see his scars. Consider all of your scars, all the physical, emotional, relational scars that you've accumulated uh, and collected, or those that you will go on to collect over the course of your lifetime. We have a God with scars. Our God grieved. Our God lamented. Our God was heartbroken. Our God suffered, and he didn't hide it. He let us see him cry. And so when you let others see you cry, you bear God's image to them. How beautiful is that? And so if you've ever been afraid of oversharing your hardships, if you, if you didn't want to be the, the emotional dump truck that just kind of backs up and unloads all of your stuff, um, that's me too. You need to remember that you actually represent Christ himself, the suffering servant of God, when you let others see your grief and when you let them see you in your grief. So acknowledge what's happened Bring God and others in and cry because in Christ you are free to grieve. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you didn't flinch at the pain and suffering in the world, but that you actually entered in especially in and through your son, Jesus. And so for all of us who have experienced grief and will experience grief, help us to enjoy fellowship with you. Give us a sweeter communion with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in and through our grief. Until the day that you come and wipe away every tear from our eyes, we pray all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.